0: In our last two lectures, we talked about the fundamental tool of the judging part of logic, the syllogism. Besides the four perfect syllogisms of the first figure, there are going to be ten imperfect syllogisms, moods of the syllogism, four in the second figure, six in the third figure, making a total of 14 perfect moods. We're not going to discuss all of these moods in detail. That would, once again, take up too much time. Aristotle goes through showing that certain possibilities in the second and third figure do not actually give us syllogisms in the same way he does in the first figure, by taking contrary examples. But he shows that the second and third figure syllogisms are good in a different way than he does with the first figure syllogisms. Before we get on to seeing how he shows that they're good, I'd like to take a brief look at the good syllogisms of the second and third figure. You'll notice there are four in the second figure, six in the third figure. And the vowels work in the same way as in the first figure. That is, the first vowel represents the major premise, the second, the minor premise, the third, the conclusion. Furthermore, you'll notice that these syllogisms also begin with the same consonants as those in the first figure, but they're not necessarily in alphabetical order. The reason is that we show that second- and third-figure syllogisms are good by reducing them to particular first-figure syllogisms. We're going to talk about how that process works in a second. But the name, the first consonant in the name, is a mnemonic device to remind us which first figure syllogism we reduce the imperfect syllogism to. So for example, in the second figure we have the syllogism Cesare, and Cesare begins with the letter C. That indicates that we are going to show that that is a good syllogism by somehow reducing it to celerant of the first figure. In the first figure, he shows that certain syllogisms work by appealing to set of all and set of none, but he's not going to do that with the second and third figures. Rather, what he's going to do is he's going to use the rules of conversion in order to add a proposition to a second- and third-figure syllogism in order to reduce it to a first-figure syllogism. Now let's look at chart 8, and that gives us a kind of example. First of all, we have at the top of the chart the first-figure syllogism, Celarent. No metal thing is a book. All coins are metal. Therefore, no coin is a book. It's obvious that the conclusion follows from those two premises. Now, we look at the second-figure syllogism, Cesare. It says, no book is metal, all coins are metal, therefore no coin is a book. The conclusion does necessarily follow from the premises in that case. It's hard to see. But what we can notice is this, that the major premise of Cesare, no book is metal, is a universal denial we can convert the Universal Denial into another Universal Denial. No book is metal converts into no metal thing is a book. And when we convert that proposition, the result is chelerant. No metal thing is a book. And so what we see is that since the rules for the conversion of propositions are true, we can show that the syllogism Cesare reduces to, is equivalent to, the first-figure-perfect syllogism Celerant, which we know works. There are more complications to the process than this. I've taken a simple example, but I think that gives us a beginning to understanding how these work. Aristotle shows that the rest of the syllogisms of the second and third figure reduced to first figure syllogisms in much the same way. In our accompanying text, we will look at how Aristotle does it for each particular one and go through it in detail. What we're going to find is that some of the other letters and the names for the syllogism also are mnemonic devices to remind us exactly how we're going to reduce those syllogisms to first figures, what we're going to convert. Now there's one more thing. We noted before that the particular denial does not convert. Since the particular denial does not convert, second and third-figure syllogisms, which contain a particular denial, cannot always be reduced to first-figure syllogisms by a simple conversion. Rather, Aristotle in that case goes through a process which is called reduction by contradiction. The basic way this process works is that he says, if this syllogism does not yield the conclusion I think it does, then it's possible for that conclusion to be contradicted and yet remain compatible with the two premises. And then he shows that if you combine the contradictory of the conclusion with one of the two premises, it contradicts the other premise, thus showing that it's not compatible with both. How that works in detail we're going to talk about more in the accompanying text. Right now we don't want to worry so much about getting through all the details as just having a general understanding of how Aristotle goes through and determines the proper kinds of syllogisms. That's going to conclude our discussion of the intricacies of the syllogism. The syllogism is the main subject of the first part of the judging part of logic. So since we've concluded our discussion of it, we're ready to move on to the second part of the judging part of logic, a consideration of the demonstrative syllogism. St. Thomas told us that judgment implies certainty. The syllogism provides us with a kind of conditional certainty because of its form alone. That is, if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. We want, however, a logical tool that's going to provide us with a kind of absolute certainty. That kind of certainty will be provided by the tool called demonstration, or the demonstrative syllogism. Now, this demonstrative syllogism simply uses the form of the syllogism we talked about before and adds to it a certain matter to produce an absolutely certain conclusion. Today's lecture is going to be a discussion of demonstration. Now, Aristotle discusses demonstration in his book called The Posterior Analytics. He begins that book by referring to the problem of learning. Now, since the classic statement of that problem is given before Aristotle by Plato in the dialogue we talked about before, the Mino. We're first going to look at the dialogue, the Mino, to see exactly what the problem of learning is. Mino asks Socrates whether virtue is teachable, and Socrates responds that he can't answer the question until he knows what virtue is. Now, after Meno's given several bad definitions of virtue, he decides to give up the search and gives, as his reason for giving up, the problem of learning, or the learner's paradox. And this is how the paradox is stated in the dialogue. The learner cannot search for what he knows, since there is no need to search, nor for what he does not know, for he does not know what to look for. That is, if the learner already knows, for example, what virtue is, there's not a need for him to learn it. But if he doesn't know what virtue is, then even if someone told him the definition of virtue, he wouldn't recognize it as the definition of virtue. Therefore, to learn what virtue is, is impossible. Either you know it, or you cannot learn it. Now, Aristotle has a solution to the problem of learning. And part of that solution involves the use of the syllogism. Let's recall, in a syllogism, If the premises are true, then the conclusion also is necessarily true. And recognizing the truth of something that I did not know previously is called learning. The syllogism then solves at least part of the problem of learning in this way. There is a way for the learner to recognize the truth of some statement, namely if it is the conclusion That follows necessarily from premises whose truth he already knows. I can use the knowledge that I already possess, in other words, to learn what I do not yet know. The syllogism solves at least part of the problem of learning. Now, in the posterior analytics, Aristotle is talking about learning in the strongest sense of the term, acquiring absolutely certain knowledge of some new truth and the logical tool that we use to acquire this certain knowledge is called demonstration the demonstrative syllogism so our next task is to look at how aristotle describes and defines the demonstrative syllogism in particular he gives the following definition in chapter two of his posterior analytics By demonstration, I mean a syllogism productive of scientific knowledge. A syllogism, that is, the grasp of which is, in itself, such knowledge. Now this definition which Aristotle gives, like every good definition, has a genus and a specific difference. The genus is obvious. It's syllogism, and we've talked before about what a syllogism is. So let's move right to the specific difference, producing scientific knowledge. Aristotle gives us a precise account of what he means by scientific knowledge. He writes, We suppose ourselves to possess scientific knowledge of a thing when we think that we know the cause on which the fact depends, as the cause of that fact and of no other fact, and further, that the fact cannot be other than it is. Let me restate or rephrase the definition in this way. I have scientific knowledge of a fact when I know that the fact must be true and when I know exactly why the fact is true. Now the example we used before is a good illustration of what Aristotle is talking about by the demonstrative syllogism. Remember we said all triangles have three sides all three-sided figures have angles equal to 180 degrees, therefore all triangles have angles equal to 180 degrees. Now, this is a demonstration. First, because it proves that a certain fact cannot be otherwise than it is. That is, we know that a triangle has three sides, and if we had taken geometry up to this point, we would realize that every three-sided figure has angles that add up to 180 degrees. Since those two propositions are necessarily true, and we know them to be necessarily true, at least by hypothesis, and the conclusion, all triangles have angles that add up to 180 degrees, necessarily follows, then we know that the conclusion is also necessarily true. Furthermore, we now have the reason why the conclusion is true. Why does a triangle have angles that add up to 180 degrees? Precisely because it has three sides. Our syllogism then fulfills both of the requirements for producing scientific knowledge. It makes us absolutely certain of the fact which is the conclusion, and it tells us exactly why that fact is true. Aristotle, having given this definition of demonstration, then discusses the nature of the premises of a demonstration. Now, because demonstration has for its purpose achieving this kind of scientific knowledge, this knowledge which is absolutely certain, it must be made of premises which can produce this scientific knowledge, this knowledge which is absolutely certain. So, Aristotle gives the following account of the premises of demonstration. He writes, assuming then that my thesis as to the nature of scientific knowing is correct, the premises of demonstrated knowledge must be true, primary, and immediate, better known than and prior to the conclusion, which is further related to them as effect to cause. Before we go through each of those, I want to make a note about that term scientific. Aristotle does not mean by scientific having to do with natural science, having to do with measurement and quantifying things. All he means by scientific there is making us absolutely certain. So any syllogism which makes us absolutely certain of the truth of its conclusion produces what Aristotle's meaning by scientific knowledge. And what he's saying is that if the premises are going to produce scientific knowledge, they must have certain characteristics. First, they must be true. We can recognize the truth of the conclusion only because we recognize that it follows from the truth of the premises. If the premises were not true, then the conclusion would not be scientific knowledge. It could perhaps by accident be true. I can get a true conclusion from false premises, but I can't know the truth of a conclusion from false premises. The premises must also be first and immediate. Now, Aristotle means here by first and immediate, not having been proved or not needing to be proved by some prior syllogism. That is, demonstrations have their ultimate source in a starting point which is self-evident. For example, the premise all triangles have three sides is first and immediate. It's self-evident. Geometry states this truth but does not try to prove it. Now how we come to understand, how we come to know these self-evident propositions is something we're going to talk about later. Now, third, Aristotle says that the premises of a demonstration have to be better known than and prior to the conclusion. That is, the premises are prior to the conclusion in the order of knowledge. Recall what this means. Something comes before another in the order of knowledge when that first thing can be known without the second, but the second cannot be known without the first. And this is clearly the relationship between the premises and the conclusion of a demonstration. I can know the premises of a demonstration, but having never made the syllogism which relates the two premises together, I can thus fail to know the conclusion. But I cannot know the conclusion of the demonstration without first having known the truth of the premises. Thus, the premises are prior to the conclusion in the order of knowledge." Now, the last characteristic of the premises of a demonstrative syllogism is that they are the cause of the conclusion. Now, what Aristotle means is that the premises of this such a syllogism indicate the cause, the reason why the conclusion of that syllogism is true. And this clearly follows from the definition we gave of scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge is a knowledge of the reason why. If demonstration produces scientific knowledge, it must give the reason why in its premises. Now, the example we used gives us a good instance of this. Triangles have three sides is the reason why triangles have angles that add up to 180 degrees. Thus, that premise, all triangles have three sides, indicates to us the cause of the conclusion. Thus, it's a good demonstration. So, every demonstrative syllogism must start from premises that are true, first and immediate, or at least the premises must be derived from premises that are first and immediate, better known than and prior to the conclusion, and the premises must be the cause of the conclusion. But, those last two qualifications cause us a problem. Let's recall before what we said about the difference between the order of knowledge and the order of being. We said that in the order of being God comes before creatures. Why? Because God is the cause of creatures. God can exist without creatures. Creatures cannot exist without God. But we said As far as the order of knowledge goes, creatures come before God. We can know about creatures without knowing about God, but we cannot know about God without knowing creatures. The consequence is that there's a conflict between what's prior to and better known than and what's cause of. The two don't match up. God is cause of creatures, Creatures are prior to and better known than God. What this seems to indicate is that we could never have a demonstration about God. Of course Aristotle is not blind to this problem. In chapter 13 he gives a solution. He writes, knowledge of the fact differs from knowledge of the reasoned fact. To begin with, when the premises are immediate, but instead of the cause, the better known of two reciprocals is taken as the middle. For of reciprocally predicable terms, the one which is not the cause may quite easily be better known and so become the middle term of a demonstration. So what Aristotle's saying is that besides knowledge of the reasoned fact, knowledge of the cause, scientific knowledge in the complete sense of the term, there's another kind of knowledge, which is absolutely certain, but which is not a knowledge of the reason why. He calls this a knowledge of the fact alone. The knowledge of the fact alone is simply a knowledge that such a fact is necessarily true, but not of the reason why the fact is true. And this results in two meanings of the term demonstration. In textbooks of scholastic philosophy and theology, these two meanings are given two names. One's called demonstration propter quid, which means on account of. Demonstration quia, or demonstration that. Demonstration propter quid is demonstration in the strictest sense, which gives us knowledge on account of what the conclusion is true. Demonstration quia is demonstration in a weaker sense, which only tells us that a fact must be true. It... Starts from not the cause, but from the effect in the premises, and it works its way back to the cause. For example, our knowledge of God's existence comes through a quia demonstration. We start out with the existence of creatures, which is the effect, and we proceed back to the existence of God, which is the cause. So, the distinction between demonstration propter quid and demonstration quia solves the problem of how we can have demonstration about God, and it turns out about many other things of which we know the effect before we know the cause. I'd like to talk about one more thing in Aristotle's posterior analytics. We saw the demonstration, the demonstrative syllogism, needed premises that were first and immediate, premises that are self-evident. So we can ask ourselves, how can we acquire a knowledge of these self-evident premises? Now, Aristotle's answer is that, while we don't acquire knowledge of the self-evident through a syllogism, otherwise they wouldn't be self-evident, we do acquire them through a process which begins with the knowledge we acquire through sensation. Now, we granted before that learning was possible because there was some pre-existent knowledge. That is, I knew the premises before and so I could come to a knowledge of the conclusion. Now our knowledge of the first principle is also going to derive from a pre-existent knowledge, but not a knowledge that's intellectual in character. It comes from the knowledge we acquire through sensation. Let's go through an example that Aristotle gives that relates to the knowledge that we acquire of the first principles of the medical art. In the ancient times, as in modern times, doctors want to cure fevers. But now we have various drugs. In those times, they used herbs to try to cure fevers. Now, a doctor may pick a particular herb, give it to Socrates, who is suffering from a fever. His fever goes away. He gives the same herb to Plato and Aristotle as well. Their fevers also go away. Each case constitutes a kind of sensation, a perception of a fever and of giving a person an herb but they remain in the doctor's mind, these sensations, after the patients have left. And thus each one constitutes a memory. Now what Aristotle says is, when I take those many memories, I can put them together and notice that they're kind of like each other. And so I can not only say, Socrates was cured by the herb, Plato was cured by the herb, Aristotle was cured by the herb, I can say, All of them, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, were cured by the herb. Thus, we have a kind of experience in which I've gathered together many memories. And from those many memories, I can draw out a universal principle. Every man with a fever is cured by this herb. This process of going from that experience, which is still at the level of sensation of the particulars, to an understanding of the universal term, is the process by which we acquire all of our knowledge of the first principles of demonstration. And so Aristotle, through the posterior analytics, has given us a complete solution the problem of learning. On the one hand, he's shown us how, given that we already have some intellectual knowledge, we can acquire more through the syllogism which is demonstrative. On the other hand, those things which we cannot learn through a demonstrative syllogism, those first self-evident immediate principles, he shows that through a process that begins with sensation, we can acquire a knowledge of them. So, we can look at the posterior analytics in two ways. We can look at it either as a discussion of the demonstrative syllogism, or more generally, as a complete solution to Mino's problem of learning. Now, that's all we're going to say about demonstration. The next lecture, we're going to begin our discussion of the discovering part of the third part of logic, And we're going to talk first of all about that part called dialectic. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.